Have you ever noticed that clothing fashions come back around in style? Maybe you have some clothes that you wore whenever that was, and now you're like, oh, I could wear that again, because that's a style again now. So you can look through each decade, so to speak, and see major trends, and later you kind of see them roll back around, whether that's the whole thing, just an element of it. My wife tells me that bell bottoms are coming back right now. It's a thing, apparently. Don't ask me, but she verified it for me, so. Uh, who knows how long the trend will last, right? But usually we see these kind of cycles in fashion. But you could also say that there are some fashion trends that are timeless, right? Some things have been around for forever, it seems like, right? A good suit is always in style, at least somewhere in the world. Uh, you know, a good dress is always a standard, right? There are some things that are pretty timeless, so to speak, in fashion. So you've got kind of those two different ideas. And in, in the spiritual world, there's kind of a similar idea. Sometimes there are what we would call fads that seem to come and go, and yet there are also these timeless truths. So some fads might be like a, um, a seeker-sensitive church, or uh, it was called in the early 2000s, the emergent church, uh, that kind of came and went. Uh, but there are truths, obviously, that have remained. God has always existed. He has always been the same. And so because of that, there are constant, there's constancy in the Christian life. And because God is constant, there are characteristics he displays that are always in fashion, so to speak. And there are characteristics that we display, that we imitate him with, that are always uh, in season. And so this morning, our passage, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, this passage, Peter is addressing wives, and he describes adorning yourself. That's it's like a fashion term, right? Put this on. Adorn yourself with this. He, he says it, basically, it never goes out of style. This is how the holy women from of old have always adorned themselves. This is worthy of living, putting this on yourselves as well. And so in our passage this morning, Peter talks about what does it mean to be a holy woman who hopes in God? And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to read with us this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. And the word of the Lord says this. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, 
as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. And this morning, we, as we think about this passage on Mother's Day, when it's Mother's Day, Father's Day, I always think that's a good opportunity to think about what does the Bible say about biblical manhood, biblical womanhood, about biblical relationships? Because it's always good to remind ourselves of that, but especially right now, it seems, that's especially important to remember. Because we are in the midst of a, a time, a culture, where those things are very uh, blurry, to say the least. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? More than that, what does it mean to be a Christian man or a Christian woman, right? We are, um, we could say that God has not just given us physiologically different roles, but uh, he's given us different uh not just physiological differences, but different roles as well in how we relate to each other. And so as we think about it, we can think about, hey, this is, these are general traits that are for every Christian, right? What does it mean to be a Christian? We could say, well, you're supposed to love, right? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are across the board universal. But if someone asks you the question, what does it mean to be a Christian woman? What is unique about that? What would you say? What's unique about Christian womanhood that is maybe different or stands out from what it means to just be a Christian in general? Are there certain things that apply to being a Christian woman? And so this morning, Peter talks about that. What does it mean to be a Christian woman? Peter's telling us to Look to those who have gone before. Look to those who have hoped in God, the holy women who hoped in God before you. And follow in their footsteps as a way to display the goodness of God. And so, as we look at this passage, we're going to see, really, a predicament. And so this is the, the path we're going to follow. We're going to look at this predicament. What is it? And then we're going to see how God, through his word here, instructs to act in that predicament? How should a wife act in this predicament? And so as we look at this passage, we see this setup, that there's a predicament that Peter says, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conducts of their wives. There's the predicament. Some do not obey the word. And so this is really talking about you're married to an unbelieving husband. He's not obeying the word. We could take principles from this and we could apply it to situations where uh, maybe your husband is a Christian. He's just not following as closely as it could be. Maybe he's uh, professed to be a Christian but doesn't show that fruit. Uh, this, the same principles would apply in those situations. But specifically, I think Peter is talking about what do you do in a situation where you're a Christian and you're married to someone who is not. 
What should you do in that situation? This is the predicament, so to speak. What should a wife do in that situation? Maybe it doesn't talk about how you got into that situation, right? There, the Bible says we should be equally yoked together. You should marry a Christian. Maybe you're in that situation because you didn't follow that commandment of the Bible. Maybe you're in that situation because you weren't a Christian and then you got married and then you came to faith later. Peter doesn't say, he doesn't go into that. He says, I mean, frankly, it doesn't matter a lot for what he's saying here. He says you're here. And so how should you act now that you are here? Right? Focus on that, not what has happened, but how should you act moving forward? And so he says that the answer is to have this attitude, not giving up, not being defeated, but what can I do to win my husband? Right? You see that, that he may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives at the end of verse 1. That is the focus of this wife. What can I do to have an impact on my husband so that he might be one, so that he might come to faith in Jesus? And so this is what Peter is writing about. This is the predicament, and he goes into the solution. And his solution is, be a holy woman who hopes in God. We saw that uh, in verse 5, that language, that's where it comes from. And so Peter says, this is how holy women acted. When you're in this situation, be a holy woman who trusts in God. Do good to your husband, even though he may not deserve it, right? Humble, this way of humbleness, this way of holiness and hope in God's way, that is the way we can have an impact. You as a wife can have an impact on your husband in this situation. Be a holy woman who hopes in God. The word holy means pure. It means set apart. It means uh, morally distinct, right? And so we see some specific ways throughout that, this passage, how you can live in a holy way. And that's what Peter talks about. The first thing, and you might even say the main thing he talks about in this passage is Submitting, or it says, it uses the word in my version, ESV, to be subject to your own husband. And so, what should you do when your husband is not following God? What would you, how would you answer that? If you hadn't read this passage, what would your solution be? Someone asks you, Hey, my husband isn't a Christian. What should I do? They come to you for advice. What would you tell them? Probably the first thing you would say would not be this. Probably, maybe, hopefully, if you've read the Bible and you've kind of embedded it in you. But usually that's not how we think. Your husband isn't following God, and so what should you do to influence him? You should follow him. You should submit to him. That's what Peter says here. It's kind of really a shocking thing when we think about it like that. Uh, almost backwards to how we think. And yet he says this is how we can influence them, win them, work towards that. And so you want to start to see your husband follow the Lord. You might think, hey, I need to bring it up regularly. I need to make sure that he knows that he is not, uh, he's not following God, that he's a, a sinner who needs Jesus. And those things are true. And yet, that's not the, the main thrust here in this passage. right? He says, 
the, the thing you need to do and focus on, maybe because we forget about it so often, is to follow him. You can win him without a word, so to speak, by submitting. So again, that doesn't mean we don't talk about Jesus. We know that people are only saved as they hear the gospel. Right? People do not get saved without the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. So if someone's going to be saved, you have to tell them about God. You have to tell them about Jesus and the gospel. That Jesus, his death, his resurrection, it cleanses us from sin. And yet, I think this phrase, winning him without a word, probably means that you're not holding it over his head. Right? You're not uh, uh, constantly bringing it up. You're not using it as leverage, so to speak. But you submit in every way you can. You line yourself up with him as you can. So we know from the Bible that we're not supposed to sin. Even here we're supposed to be holy. We're supposed to be doing good. It says of this godly wife. And so if your husband is leading you into sin, don't follow him there. Obviously you can't follow. You can't uh, follow his lead in that area. But... In what ways you can follow him. Again, this doesn't mean that uh, you shouldn't have conversations. I think it kind of implies in this passage that you're going to have conversations with your husband about where you stand with God and what it means to follow him. But there are plenty of times in marriage where it's possible to line up with your husband, to go along with him, where you can support him. And follow his lead, even if he's not a Christian, even if he doesn't agree with you on your beliefs. And so Peter said this respect is an aspect of submission and what it looks like to, to hopefully win your husband. It's something God can use to hopefully win your husband to following him. It's not, it won't happen through begrudgingness or bitterness or looking down on him for what he's doing or or if he does change, uh, or at least if he changes, it will be in, in spite of another kind of behavior, right? We're not, we're not trying to have that bitterness. That's not what's going to change him, right? If he, God is going to use you doing good in the relationship to bring about change. That's what Peter is saying here. And so... Uh, even in this word, we see more of what submission is. And that's important. I'm gonna, I've tried to sprinkle it through so far, but I'll try to continue to sprinkle it through. Our culture has a lot of ideas about what that means. It's usually a negative term, right? We, uh, we talked about it in Sunday school. First Peter has these, these situations where he goes through this list. When should you submit? He says you should submit to government. You should submit to your employer. You should submit in your family. There are, there are authority structures in life that God has put in place. And it is a good thing to live in those authority structures. And so in the family, the Bible clearly says that the husband is the head of the wife. He's the leader of the family. And so I don't think it'd be wrong to say when it comes down to it, the, the, the husband's given the responsibility to make the final call. Where are we going to go as a family? And yet, it would be a foolish leader who doesn't consider the input of his wife, of his family, in 
making those decisions, right? It's, you can be respectful and still give input, still have that, uh, that influence, right? And so as husbands, we, we talk to our wives, we understand what is she saying, what is she desiring, we defer to her preferences whenever possible. Uh, just like verse 7 says, we won't spend a lot of time on verse 7, uh, maybe on Father's Day we will, but it says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, right? This is not just cold leadership, but a, a leader who understands his wife, who wants to do what is good for her, as Christ did for the church. And so, if that was the mind of Jesus, as a, as a wife, it is, it is good for you to, to help in that. To not just be silent or begrudging and following, but how can I help my husband in leading how he should. And part of that is giving in, input, not, not demanding, but making sure he knows what the information is so he can make the best decision, so to speak. And you being a part of that. And so if your husband isn't following God, what should you do? Here this passage says you should submit by doing good, by being respectful, so that he may be one to the ways of God and become that good leader that you want him to be. That's the, the leader that's best for God, that's best for honoring him, best for your family by doing this. And so what else does this passage say? That's not the only quality. It's probably the main one. We see it come up a few times. But there are other, other paint colors in this portrait of this godly woman who is seeking to influence those around her, especially the one closest to her. And so the other characteristics we see is that holy women don't focus on external appearances. So when you think about how you can influence your husband, again, that's the, that's the point of this passage. How can I influence my husband? Peter is saying that the way to influence him is not through enticing him with your appearance. And that's, frankly, it's countercultural. It's countercultural then, it's countercultural now, right? We can look around at the culture and we think that we see that sometimes it's through whether it's through movies or music or social media, sometimes implicitly or explicitly we get the message that this is how a woman influences someone is with her body. But that is not what Peter is saying. He's not saying there's anything wrong with looking good. I'm sure your husband wouldn't mind that if you look good. But he's saying that's not going to move the needle, spiritually speaking in influencing him to follow God. That will not move the needle. And so God says, who you are is not what you look like. That's another important point here. This passage says that there's the hidden person of the heart in verse four. And so you as a woman, your value is not just how you look, it's not just your body, but is that inner person, the embodied soul that is very precious in the eyes of God, that God values this, that embodied soul, this imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, 
The Bible doesn't focus on the external, but the internal. What is the condition of our hearts? John Piper has a helpful comment when talking about this part specifically, gentle and quiet. Again, this this passage, just because of the culture we live in, I think is riddled with words that kind of uh, stun us or trigger us sometimes. And so we think of the word quiet. Right? When you connect the word quiet with woman, it means something in our culture, right? That you usually don't say, right? But John Piper has a helpful comment, and I was really, I was greatly helped uh, by his comments in this looking at this passage and preparing this message. But he, he brings up the point that you might think of this caricature of telling a woman to be quiet when you hear this, right? But that's not what really we should think of when we see this word. This gentle and serene spirit is really the idea. This, this calmness, this coolness, no matter what is going on. And remember the situation this woman is in, right? This, if she's looking for something external to bring her peace, it's probably not gonna happen because her husband, the one close to her, doesn't share with her in her faith. And so if she's looking for that from him, to, to bring peace to the situation. She's probably not going to get it. There's probably actually going to be a lot of dissonance, a lot of uh, disruption in her faith because of this marriage, a lot of challenges. And yet this passage says, no, it's not externally, but it internally. God brings this gentle and serene spirit, and that is a precious thing in his eyes, and that is impactful. That is an impactful thing as a woman. And so, a woman like this, a holy woman, knows who they are. They know that they're trying to influence people, but they're doing it out of a place not of needing validation or accolades, but a place of internal peace, internal serenity. And really, that's, that's an incredible thing that women have this kind of influence, to be able to influence out of this place of peace, out of this place of gentleness and kindness. It's a reminder to us all, really. This is, this is what a holy woman who trusts in God looks like. And so finally, we think about a holy woman who hopes in God. Our hope is in God. And this is especially true for this woman because again in this situation if her hope is in things being ideal then that may not come that may not happen right she's in this relationship where uh, the same beliefs the same ideals are not shared necessarily but her hope isn't in that that if that doesn't happen things will still be okay her hope is in God, that's really what allows her to, to follow her husband, to, to submit. If, if you did not believe that there was a higher authority than all the authority here on earth, then it would really just end up in a power struggle. Who can be the person with the most authority? Right? We see that really today in our culture. Our country, the ideas of our country are void of God for the most part by and large, and how has that worked itself out? We can see it recently, it's worked itself out in rebellion against authority. When you don't think there's a higher authority, 
then it just comes down to who can have the most power, who can be in authority. And so we see that in really against all levels of authority, whether that's government, whether that's uh, police, whether that's in the family itself. But this passage is saying when we hope in God, when we understand that he is in authority over everything, then it means we are able to follow others who even maybe aren't leading very well. Because we know that ultimately they're not the ones who are deciding what's going to happen. That God is in ultimate authority. And he is capable of handling the issue. And we can be confident that one day he will handle everything. That he will right every wrong. And so we, it means we have to be faithful in following him and trusting that we're not just in this endless cycle of where we have to demand our ways, but we can be followers knowing that ultimately we don't just follow this person, but we follow the king of the universe. And his way is good and best. And so that's really the message of chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Peter. And this is just another way he says that. How are we supposed to submit in different situations here? We're told how we're supposed to submit in the marriage relationship. But throughout it all, we see that submission is possible because we have this hope in God. And because we hope in Him, we can do good no matter what is going on. Even when the people in authority are not doing good. That's a commonality we see in all these passages. We can assume that the government in that time, the emperor, which was probably Nero at this time, was not really leading that well. And yet Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution ordained for people. We can assume that the slave owners in that time were really not leading very well. In fact, we see that. They, they would uh, beat their servants, their slaves, sometimes justly because they did something wrong, but sometimes unjustly because they were doing something good and they just didn't like it. Peter says, when you're in that, under that place of authority that you can't really get out from, that it's okay, still follow God, still do good, because this is what Jesus himself did. Jesus, who is God of the universe, who is in the position of authority, came and put himself under the authority, first of God the Father, but also subjected himself to other human beings who treated him wrongfully. And ultimately we see that through the death on the cross, that Jesus' submission is really what's behind all of us being able to submit. He hoped in God. You remember what it says? He looked to the future hope that was coming, the joy that was set before him. And because of that, he was able to endure the cross and despise the shame and continue on. Well, so we who are in this under authority, in whatever situation it is, and this morning we're focusing on marriage, so too we also can continue. If we're in a good relationship, we rejoice. If we're not, we can still continue and hope in God, knowing that this is not the end. There is joy yet to come. So we can continue through it. And as we do that, we will adorn, we will display something of the goodness of God. Because this is what Jesus himself did. 
So as we are followers of others, even those who may not lead well, we display what Jesus is like. This is all of these things. This picture of the holy woman who hopes in God. This is, this is the picture that 1 Peter 3 paints for us. And as you think about it, this is not, this is not a weak woman. In fact, submission cannot come from a weak woman. I don't know if you've thought about that. I don't think it's possible. Because you must be strong. You must be able to hope in God and hold on to that hope through anything. That is not weakness. That is strength. This type of holiness and submission comes from a strong woman who has the peace of God inside of themselves and holds on to God. There's always more to say. There are nuances we didn't cover this morning uh, that are important. What to do in certain marriage situations uh, that are not just maybe difficult but fall into abuse or other situations. Those need to be thought about as well. But this morning we see this picture of the goodness of the relationships that God has put in place, specifically the goodness of marriage, that this is how he created it. And it is a good thing to live in the structures that God has put in place. And hopefully you've been able to see a little bit of that, a little bit of how this is a good thing and how it doesn't hamstring us in living or following God, but it allows us to, to really to thrive as we follow him. Let's pray together this morning as we conclude. Father God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for all of your word. That you don't just talk about uh, things that are easy or things we already have figured out, but you talk about things that stretch us, that make us think that maybe seem different or countercultural to us. We pray that we would continue to think about them because we know that what you say is good. We know that you are good, that everything that comes from you is good, and so we pray that we would understand what does it mean in the marriage relationship? How is this good? And may we live according to this goodness, whether that's as a husband who is trying to lead well, whether that's as a wife who is trying to follow well. How can we do that, Lord? And may we, as we do that, as we think through that, may we experience the goodness that there is in this gift of husband and wife that you have given us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.